welcome back to another edition of the ASEP Equal Podcast. I'm your host, as always, Dr. Jason Woods. Today is an absolutely fantastic lecture with Dr. Joshua Goldstein. He's an MD, PhD, works at Mass General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. He's a professor of emergency medicine there and is director for the Center of Neurologic Emergencies at MGH. And we asked him to come today and discuss with us anticoagulant reversal in the presence of hemorrhagic stroke. Most of this discussion is going to focus on the available agents, when to use them, what data is out there as far as comparative efficacy, and a little bit on cost effectiveness. This is not going to be a deep dive into all issues surrounding the treatment of hemorrhagic stroke. We're actually going to do a couple of more episodes that will dig further. Today is specifically on what are the agents that can be used for anticoagulant reversal, what's the data, and how might you use them. With that said, Dr. Goldstein, can you give us an idea of what you're going to talk about today and help us understand the journey that you're going to take us on? I will thank everybody for joining today, and I hope everybody is staying safe. I'll begin with my disclosures. I have received research funding from Pfizer, Portola, and Octopharma and consulting from CSL Bering, Octopharma, Philips, Portola, and N-Control. So the outline of this talk will go through just the most common issues that come up with anticoagulation reversal in intracerebral hemorrhage. And the top ones are warfarin, dabigatran, factor 10A inhibitors, including rivaroxaban and apixaban. There's a couple other ones out there, but those are the major two in the United States, at least, with edoxaban more common in some countries, um, and antiplatelet agents. I'll begin uh, with the goal of anticoagulation reversal. What are we doing? And this is not necessarily always obvious to everybody, but this patient here has come in with a spontaneous intraparenchymal hemorrhage and later had what's called hematoma expansion, where they had more bleeding. And so when they first arrive in the ED, an event has happened before they ever reached uh, healthcare that we can't solve. So the question for us is, we may not be able to go back in time and make this event not happen, but can we prevent it at least from becoming worse? So that's our, our mission with anticoagulation reversal. It's not that we're trying to make the patient unbleed. Uh, in other words, that victory is not measured in undoing their stroke that they have already had, but in preventing them from getting worse, which creates an opportunity for the brain to recover. Knowing that that's the goal of this treatment, can you talk us through some of the anticoagulant agents and then how they might be reversed? Well, let's begin with warfarin. This is, uh, was the most common anticoagulant for many, many years. What I want to highlight here is that patients on warfarin, war warfarin is a vitamin K antagonist. It's required for post-translational carboxylation of four of the factors. So what you should think about is that the coagulation cascade has a bunch of stuff in it. That's mostly all you need to remember. It's a bunch of stuff. But four of those things, factor two, factor seven, factor nine, and factor 10, when somebody's on warfarin, that warfarin is preventing the liver from making those four coagulation factors effective. It's preventing the synthesis of these biologically active factors. So unlike some other anticoagulants that we're going to talk about later, these patients are really just missing those four factors for all intents and purposes. So that really helps you understand what strategy you want to use. Patients do not have enough of factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. So our mission is to give them back. Let me start with intravenous vitamin K. So intravenous vitamin K is what gives your liver the ability to start making your own coagulation factor. Now, that takes time. That's not a one-hour solution, but it's certainly a 24-hour solution. And what I, I really want that to highlight is that you should start that as soon as possible, even though it won't take full effect for 24 hours. In the emergency setting, the sooner you start it, the sooner you let the person start making their own coagulation. Now, what do you do until that's happened, until vitamin K takes effect? 
Until then, you really need to deliver this patient the four clotting factors. So one way to do that is FFP, fresh frozen plasma. And where does this come from? When people donate blood, donated blood is split into basically three things for simplicity purposes, packed red blood cells, platelets, and plasma. Plasma is the everything else, and that includes a bunch of stuff in it, including all the coagulation factors. But those four factors plus a bunch of other ones. So this is one way to deliver four clotting factors to warfarin patients, and it's relatively cheap. Depending on pricing, you can imagine it can cost $200, $400, maybe in some places up to $500 for four units. So each unit may be $50 to $100. The other major one is prothrombin complex concentrate. There are many prothrombin complex concentrates available in the world with a lot of different brand names and a lot of different stuff in it. So when you read the literature on PCC, just know that depending on what environment that study was done, they may be uh, talking about a different factor. The major PCC available in the U.S. is brand named K-Centra. This is a concentrate of the four coagulation factors. So it's still donated plasma. Human volunteers have donated plasma, but what they've done is instead of taking this bag of a bunch of stuff, they've really concentrated uh, the vitamin K-dependent coagulation factors, protein C, protein S, and some heparin, with the goal of making a product that can rapidly reverse uh, warfarin. It does not need to be typed and screened. It can be infused in, in less than 20 minutes. The INR is corrected rapidly. Cost is a function of how many units. Dosing is weight and INR-based. The heavier the patient, the higher dose they need, and the higher the INR, the higher dose. So the question is, what would make you pick one over the other? And while there have been a few randomized control trials comparing PCC to FFP, really the major one in ICH, that's our disease that we're looking at here today, the major study that looked at this was called the INCH trial. And in the INCH trial, 54 patients with warfarin-related ICH were randomized to PCC or FFP. Uh, and what they found, first, as expected, PCC goes in fast. Four units of fresh frozen plasma at about 200 milliliters per unit can be a liter or more. There are some studies uh, highlighting that patients to get full reversal can need one or two liters of fresh frozen plasma to really reverse their INR. Whereas PCC is more like uh, 70, 80 milliliters, again, depending on dose, and infuses over 15, 20 minutes. So it's much more rapid. And, and as expected, PCC showed much faster INR reversal. Now, there also looked like in this study, there was less ICH expansion. That's a radiographic endpoint. That sounds good. And what we really wanted was a clinical endpoint. What I'll say is if you look at this Kaplan-Meier curve, those of you who may not be used to this, I'll, I'll just highlight. This is uh, uh, how a lot of studies look at endpoints. Survival is here on the y-axis. 100 is 100% of people alive. And on the x-axis is time. So at time zero in this trial, when you first start the trial, everybody's alive. You have to be, of course, to enter the trial. We only do clinical trials on alive patients. So everybody needs to be 100% at the beginning. And then you see what happens. And then over time, what you see here is that in the FFP group, people pass away, which is what happens in intracranial hemorrhage under the best of circumstances. And the PCC arm, it looked like fewer patients died right? There's more survival early time points and more survival even later time points. That was not statistically significant. And so this could be due to chance. So unfortunately, this trial was stopped early by the regulatory authorities due to concern that FFP was worse. It was unfortunate because that was the whole question of the trial. So the trialists felt like they didn't get a chance, unfortunately, to complete their trial. So we're left with uh, knowing that PCC works faster. It seems to reduce ICH expansion. We're not sure that it changes mortality but there's a trend in that general direction. So the standard dose for PCC is based on both weight and INR. So for an INR between two and four, it's uh, 25 units per kilogram. For an INR between four to six, it's uh, 35 units per kilogram. 
greater than six is 50 units per kilogram with a maximum dose. So very obese patients aren't getting this large dose. There's a certain maximum dose just reflecting your intravascular volume. Many hospitals have moved to an initial fixed dose. Some use 1,000, some use 1,500 units. Our hospital uses 1,500 units. And the idea behind that is it makes life much easier for whoever has to draw this up and give it, a pharmacist, a nurse, or whoever. It's easy to calculate. If you just know standard, we give the same dose for everybody. It's easy to calculate. There's more rapid delivery. It can be lower cost. For many patients, that dose is effective. At our hospital, we use an initial fixed dose, repeat the INR. And if it's still not where we need it to be, then we give the rest of the dose. In other words, whatever the dose is that the person needed to get based on the uh, initial clinical trials. So in conclusion, for intracerebral hemorrhage with an elevated INR, all these trials have only included people with an INR over two. The treatment should be IV vitamin K and PCC if it's available. If PCC is not available, then uh, use IV vitamin K and fresh frozen plasma. Just to review the last couple of minutes, warfarin or Coumadin is a vitamin K antagonist. It inhibits the production of factors 2, 7, 9, and 10. Reversing this should include vitamin K as soon as possible, although this will not have full effect for 24 hours, and it should include provision of the factors themselves. Dr. Goldstein favors PCC if it's available, and if not, FFP. Dr. Goldstein, are there any complications or concerns for complications that we should be aware of when using PCC? I will say the flip side, though, is there are some concerns of whether there's more thromboembolism risk with PCC because you're giving it faster. Maybe if you give people coagulation factors faster rather than slower, there's more risk. Uh, Nobody's found that to be true yet. The clinical trials haven't found any difference in thromboembolism risk, but the concern is they're all small enough that there could be a real safety signal that we're missing. So I would say in conclusion that the benefit of PCC is probably that it's both faster in theory and in reality, and that time is really the magic piece. So I'll move on to the direct oral anticoagulants. Um, When we talk about the direct oral anticoagulants, there's really two major categories, factor two inhibitor, and the major one that's available in this country is dabigatran, and factor 10A inhibitors. The three major ones that are available for you to use are rivaroxaban, apixaban, and edoxaban. There's one more that I think is not commonly available, batrixaban. And the question is how to reverse these. For the most of this talk, I'll use rivaroxaban and apixaban. They're mostly all the same, but I'll just highlight those two because those were the most commonly used agents. Now, the first reversal agent let me comment on is time. And time is not always as appreciated as it could be. And here's why. The half-life of different drugs in healthy subjects for rivaroxaban is five to nine hours, the bigotran seven to nine hours, apixaban 12 hours, edoxaban 10 to 14 hours, and warfarin 40 hours. So we've all been used to over the years thinking about anticoagulant as somebody who's on it We don't know when their last dose was, but we assume they're still on it. And for warfarin, that's fair because the half-life takes forever. But somebody on rivaroxaban, if their last dose was yesterday, they've cycled through a couple half-lives already. Now, these times uh, are longer with older age and renal insufficiency, so that's true. But if you have somebody with an intracranial bleed and you know that their last dose of rivaroxaban was two days ago, they may not have anything to reverse. In other words, time may have reversed them. So the first thing to think about is, do we know or have a reason to believe when the last time was that this patient took their anti. Now, time is is often not available for us, either because we don't know anything about the patient or because the patient has arrived soon after symptom onset. And that time from symptom onset is a key thing. The early time is the most critical time, those first few hours. And that's when you really need to make sure that you reverse their anticoagulation because we think that's the highest risk time for expansion. Now, dabigatran or Prodaxa has a couple ways to reverse it. The major one is called idarucizumab. Brand name is Praxbind. This is a monoclonal antibody that binds to bigotran. So here's thrombin, your own coagulation factor. And, and again, to highlight, patients on to bigotran, they've got plenty of factor two. They've got plenty of thrombin. 
It's just that they've got a drug in their body that's inhibiting it. So if you remove that inhibitor, you restore thrombin. You don't need to give them extra factor two if you can undebigotranize them, so to speak. And so this is a monoclonal antibody. It binds debigotran, releasing the patient's own thrombin to do its normal job. This is given as two intravenous boluses 15 minutes apart. Now, some people also use PCC for this purpose. Uh, and the reason is PCC contains factor two. It's a relatively efficient way to deliver factor two with the hope that if you give extra factor two, you can override the effects of dibigatran. Well, I'll start with fridarucizumab. Fridarucizumab was tested in a single arm trial. There's no comparison arm. They did find reversal is rapid. Uh, you give two IV infusions, you effectively have no unbound dibigatran in the circulation, and that lasts out here up to 24 hours. So reversal is rapid, lasts at least 24 hours. The cost, about $3,500, is probably similar to the cost of PCC. 90-day mortality in this population was 19%, and thromboembolism rate was 6.8%. Problem is we don't know what the placebo arm would look like and whether these rates are sort of natural course of disease for critically ill anticoagulated patients who need to be reversed. And there's been no similar trial of PCC. So really the only agent that's really been tested in a clinical trial in this circumstance is idarucizumab. So for dibigatran reversal, the first question is time. And then if you need to reverse something, idarucizumab is a specific agent. PCC is often used off-label as a nonspecific reversal agent. How about factor 10A uh, inhibitors? One of the questions that comes up with both this and dibigatran is, can you do a lab test? And I'll highlight here that there's really no good, no great lab test for either one. You can do an anti-10A level to check for rivaroxaban or apixaban, but it's not widely available. It's not quickly available, and it has to be calibrated for the agent. In other words, a lot of labs out there have anti-10A level tests that are calibrated for enoxaparin, a low molecular weight heparin, but aren't necessarily calibrated for this agent. The PT and PTT, if they're elevated, you can believe this patient's coagulopathic. But if they're not, uh, it can be false negative up to 44% of the time in one group that looked at intracerebral hemorrhage. So you don't really have a good way of knowing other than if the patient told you when their last dose was, then you can make a reasonable guess. How do you reverse them? I'll start with talking about indexinate. This is the only agent that's been tested uh, in clinical trials for this purpose and is FDA approved for this purpose. It's again, a monoclonal antibody, just like idiocizumab. It's intended to look enough like factor 10 to bind to the inhibitors, so it'll bind rivaroxaban, it binds apixaban, it binds edoxaban, but not interact with your own coagulation system. So your own body's coagulation cascade is not getting confused, but the drug that you took is. So the idea is you're infusing this monoclonal antibody, it binds up your factor 10A inhibitor, freeing up factor 10 to do its job and coagulate. I will also say it binds to low molecular heparins, such as enoxaparin as well, they did a clinical trial that included enoxaparin, but just too few patients received that for uh, good analysis. So it's only FDA approved for rivaroxaban and apixaban at this time. Now, this is an intravenous bolus plus a two-hour infusion. Again, some people use PCC for this purpose. Just like we saw with uh, dibigatran, PCC contains factor 10 as well. And the goal is if you give somebody extra factor 10, you can override the effect of your factor 10 in. For uh, indexinate, I'll highlight, now this is a randomized trial just in healthy volunteers. The trial in, in sick patients was only in a single arm study. But in healthy volunteers, what I'll highlight here is your anti-factor 10 activity here on the y-axis. Everybody starts with rivaroxaban in their bloodstream. When you give indexinate, you effectively unrivaroxabinize this patient, right? You remove rivaroxaban from the uh, equation for the bolus, and then during this two-hour infusion, after the infusion wears off, though, the patient drifts back up to where they would have been in placebo. So here at four or five hours, the patient's clearly got a lot lower anti-10A activity than they started, but really the most impactful time is these first couple hours. So here is actually the clinical trial in patients with life-threatening bleeding. 
This was a single arm trial with no comparison group. And what they found, as expected, that there's complete reversal during the bolus, during the infusion. And then at four hours and eight hours, the patient sort of drifted back up, again, lower to where they were before, but they would have been under placebo arm. There is some data that other laboratory abnormalities are also addressed, thrombin time, echoing clotting time, uh, so that there's probably still an effective indexment going further out. But for our purposes here, just anti-10A activity has drifted back up. The idea behind this is that you've given the patient enough time to form a clot and stop bleeding while minimizing exposure to thromboembolic of it. 90-day mortality was 14%. 90-day thromboembolism rate was 10%. Again, single-arm trial, so we don't know whether this reflects natural course of disease, and this is just what happens to these folks, or whether we're really saving them, saving lives, and, and maybe even saving thromboembolism. And cost. Now, this is a much more expensive agent. There's two doses, a low dose and a high dose. The low dose, which is the most commonly used, is about 26,000. Higher dose is 58,000. You know, something I'd really like you to clarify for me, can you explain where these numbers as far as mortality and thromboembolism risk sit compared to what is known about the natural course of hemorrhagic stroke in the presence of anticoagulants? What's the expected mortality there? And why can't you make conclusions in these single arm studies about the utility or safety or efficacy of these medications compared to uh, those others, if there's already a significant difference? Are there, what's, what's the issue with making that logical leap? You know, the 90-day mortality, if this was just a group of intracranial hemorrhage patients, that's actually a very good 90-day mortality. Anticoagulant-associated intracerebral hemorrhage has a mortality between 30 and 50%, maybe even 60%, depending on the cohort you use. But this study was not just ICH. It was uh, any severe bleeding. So that brings down our expected mortality rate. I would say that it's kind of hard to tell. You know, there's a lot of intracerebral hemorrhage patients in this study. So you might have expected a higher mortality rate if this drug wasn't doing anything. The flip side is the most severely injured patients weren't enrolled. There were cutoffs of ICH size and GCS score. And so they were a little bit healthier ICH patients. So that brings in the expected mortality. But I would say that if you just sort of take a step back and think patients with life-threatening bleeding on anticoagulants, there is certainly a baseline mortality rate that they're going to see. But I, I freely confess I don't have a good sense of how much different this is than some similar baseline group. We don't really have a good placebo group even to pick from because every observational study out there, people get something. You know, they're out there getting PCCs or FFP or antifibrinolytics. So it's really hard to find a good alternate control group. The thromboembolism rate, a lot of studies of anticoagulant-associated hemorrhage find thromboembolism 7 to 8% maybe in this kind of population. So this is a little higher than one might have expected. Not a lot, but again, it's hard because critically ill anticoagulated patients, if you put them in an ICU and stop anticoagulating them, they have a baseline risk of thromboembolism. So I'll confess, I don't have a good sense of how much different this is than baseline. I know this is a really tough question to ask you to have to make a definitive statement on, but if I'm an ED director and I'm trying to figure out which agents to stock, do you have any guidance based on what is known? I know it can't be completely definitive but we do have to make a decision based on what evidence is available, and it is probably going to be different based on the resources and patient volume you have. So can you speak to that? Sure. Uh, I think there's a tough territory. I think a lot of people have struggled with this very question. So what I would say is this. If your question is what agent has the most data to support its use, clearly indexing it. It's the only agent that somebody's actually done a clinical trial, whether single arm or otherwise. The other most commonly used choice, PCC, people just started using it. There's really not been a clinical trial that's been published looking at its use. So 
Second, from a mechanism of action perspective, you know, indexinate is sort of designed for this purpose. It's designed to pull factor 10A inhibitors away from your own factor 10, whereas PCC is giving you extra factor 10, which may help, but it may just provide more factor 10 for your 10A inhibitor to bind. Assuming if we took cost completely out of the equation, I would say indexinate's a better choice. The only philosophical question, of course, is this issue of what's happening at four hours or eight hours. Do you continue the infusion, right, for not just two hours, but four hours or longer off-label until you feel confident that the patient stopped bleeding? That cost, that's a real cost. That's a lot of money. And how do you justify it when you don't really know that you're changing clinical outcomes? That's really the question. We would like to first have less bleeding in your brain, but even more so, we'd like the patient to actually have a better life. So I don't think we know the answer to that, uh, and it's tough. So my answer would, I guess, be I think that if you're a small hospital that's transferring patients anyway, and and this would wreck your budget, then you shouldn't provide it. (laughs) And you can honestly say, we don't know that this is changing outcomes, and so we can't really spend $50,000 on this patient for a drug that we don't know whether it's improving their outcome. But for high-volume centers that have a lot of these patients and maybe can absorb these costs and a lot of them, I think, are using this because there's better data for it and it makes more sense. So I'll uh, summarize here with a few things. The Neurocritical Care Society has some guidelines that they recommend PCC or FIBA. Uh, emergency neurologic life support is also from Neurocritical Care Society. Actually says recommends indexinate as first line, PCC as second line. American Heart Association recommends FIBA or, or other PCCs or consider factor 7A. The American College of Chest Physicians recommends specific reversal agents and indexinate or uh, idarisizumab where available over nonspecific agents. I'll finish with antiplatelet agents. The most common ones are aspirin and clopidogrel. Again, these are agents that circulate and block platelet activity. The patient still has platelets in them. So some people feel like if we transfuse them extra platelets, we can override this effect. Is that effective? This, fantastically, there was a randomized trial, and it makes me very happy that somebody really did a randomized control trial. And they took uh, 190 patients with intracerebral hemorrhage on an antiplatelet agent, randomized them to get a platelet transfusion or not. And the conclusions were that platelet transfusions were associated with worse outcomes. So it wasn't just no difference. It was statistically significantly worse. So don't transfuse platelets. And it may be that there's not a currently effective way to reverse antiplatelets. And that's fine. It's not that it's not worth doing. It's just that we don't have a tool to do it effectively. Some authors check platelet activity. If you want to get fancy, uh, some hospitals do platelet activation assays or thromboelastography, TEG. But for what it's worth, there was a nice big observational study from the American Heart Association Get With the Guidelines of 82,000 ICH patients. And at least we can say those on a single antiplatelet agent, their outcomes were not different. So it's not obvious that being on a single antiplatelet agent carries a higher risk of more bleeding than not. Dual antiplatelet agents, though, were. So if you're going to worry about somebody on an antiplatelet agent, worry about those on a dual regimen. So in conclusion, for warfarin reversal, give IV vitamin K plus PCC. For dabigatran reversal, idiricizumab is a specific agent. PCC is a nonspecific agent. For factor 10A inhibitor reversal, andexin, it's a specific agent. PCC is a nonspecific agent. Uh, And for antiplatelet reversal, there's not currently a clear reversal agent. So we don't yet know that we have something that's effective for this purpose. And Dr. Goldstein actually wrapped that up with a better summary than I ever could. So I'm not even going to try. Dr. Goldstein, thank you so much for being here with us. And thank you listeners for taking the time to listen today. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. You can find the rest of the ASEP Equal podcast at the Academic Life in Emergency Medicine website, www.aliem.com, or as part of the ALEM podcast feed on any major podcasting platform. You can find me on Twitter at jwoodsmd or via email at jason.woods.md at gmail.com. 